jump in. So good seeing you all here and glad you're getting a chance to greet each other and say hello. Welcome. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here and so glad you chose to come out this morning for our worship service. You can open up your Bible to Mark chapter 15. That's where we're going to be. And if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. There are some on the seats in front of you. And if you do grab one of those Bibles, we'll be on page 481 for a quick reference. We're walking along through the book of Mark, continuing our series there, picking up where we left off. Again, uh, chapter 15, verse 16, and a huge thank you to Pastor Lee for preaching last week. I was out, but he did such a good job, and as he always does, right, walking us through the text and pointing us to Jesus, I was able to listen to the podcast afterwards, and it was just, it was great. I was so encouraged as I listened to it, so I know that, that you all were as well. Uh, we're in the season of Advent, as you all have seen with the candles. Thanks to the Patterson family for, for lighting the candle and praying uh, for us and sharing a bit about what this season is all about. Again, if you're unfamiliar, Advent means coming. And so it's a season where we intentionally prepare our hearts with longing and expectation for the coming of Jesus. And of course, that means we look back to his first advent at Christmas, his birth, and we celebrate that this time of year. But as they shared this morning, we are between two advents, his first coming and his return. And so we as the church find ourselves again waiting in the season of expectation and longing and hope for when Jesus the King will return and fully establish his kingdom. But again, for now, we're in the end of the book of Mark. We're almost to the finish line, friends. We've been here for a while. And again, I know this might feel a little strange that we're looking at the cross and the death of Jesus. I mean, this is Easter. This is Good Friday stuff while it's the Christmas season. And so it might feel a little disjointed. And, and we're not doing that because your pastors are Scrooges or Grinches and want to just steal the joy of Christmas. That's not why we're doing this. We're doing this because we truly believe and have this conviction that in order to understand the birth of Jesus, we have to understand the death of Jesus, right? In order to understand the meaning of Christmas, to understand why he came, we have to understand his death and the end of his life and, of course, his resurrection. And so that's what we're going to do. But as we get started, I want to ask you this question. Think with me about the phrase, treated like a king. When you hear that phrase, what, what comes to mind? Someone is treated like a king or he wants to be treated like a king or I want to be treated like a a king. What does that phrase mean? It means someone wants to be treated with honor, right? dignity, great respect. Someone like, hey, you just put your feet up, sit back, watch the game. I'm going to take care of things for you. Or honey, hey, go do something fun for yourself. I'm going to watch the kids. I'm going to clean out. You do something for you. Or I made your favorite meal. A box of stovetop stuffing is waiting for you on the stove. Come on. Yeah, or, you know, I brought you some kind of special gift. I just want to honor you. Maybe this is on your birthday. They say, I just want to make you feel special, right? I want to treat you like royalty, serve you, give you whatever you need. Right? Treated like a king. 
you know, this time of year, we hear that word a lot, king. King, especially in the songs that we sing, our Christmas songs. We started the service with, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, right? Or joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Or Noel, the first Noel. Noel, 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 Noel. Born is the king of Israel, right? We celebrate a king. We remember this time of year that Jesus is a king, the king of the universe, the king of the world. And so we would expect, if that's true, that he would be treated like a king, that he would be honored, that he would be bowed down before in in worship. And yet, we look to the text this morning and we actually see the exact opposite. We see a whole new meaning to the phrase, treated like a king. You see what I mean? As we jump in, we're in again, Mark 15, verse 16. Jesus has been arrested. He's been on trial before the high priest, the, the Jewish leaders. They've handed him over to Pilate and the Roman authorities. They've now handed him over to be executed. And that's where we pick up. Verse 16 says this. It says, the soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. So Jesus is led away and this company of soldiers, you see, gathers round and they mock him. They put a purple robe on him. They put a crown of thorns on his head, purple being the color of royalty, a robe and a crown, signs of royalty, a royal greeting, hail, king of the Jews, the same way that a Roman citizen would be expected to greet Caesar, the emperor himself, with hail Caesar. But they say, hail, king of the Jews. They're even bowing down to him in honor. But you see, it's all a mockery. It's all done to insult him, to shame him, to play games with him. And he's, he's beaten. He's spit on. And he's sent away to die. Continues, verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. And they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Verse 24, and they crucified him, dividing up his clothes They cast lots to see what each would get. So on the way to the cross, Jesus, some some stranger, kind of comes passing by and the Romans force him to carry the cross of Jesus because likely at this point Jesus was too weak to do so himself from his beatings. Verse 22, he's, excuse me, verse 24, then he's, he's crucified. I mean, this is the cross, This is the passage. This is the the truth that we sing about. 
each week, that we talk about each week, the cross of Christ. This is the cross that we decorate our homes with, that we, we celebrate as believers. It's this passage. It's this reality, Jesus going to his death. And, and you see that Mark states it rather matter of fact. I mean, verse 24, and they crucified him. Three words in the Greek. Very simple. Doesn't give us really all the details. I mean, you would expect his first century audience would know what crucifixion would mean, the type of death that that would be. Be one of shame, public spectacle, one of horrific agony. As we know, a victim's arms would be stretched out and nailed to a wooden beam, and then their feet would be nailed or harnessed to the vertical wooden post, and they would hang there until they died, usually from suffocation, because as their body hung down, it put immense pressure on their capacity to breathe. And so in order to take a breath, the criminal would have to lift themselves up to take a breath and then go down into great agony. And the process would continue until they were no longer strong enough to lift themselves and they would die. It's a horrific death. I mean, even the Romans abhorred this practice. It was saved for really criminals, for, for slaves. It was looked down upon in every way. Continues, verse 25, Jesus on the cross. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the written notice of the charge against him read, what? The, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Again, we see this public shaming, this public execution, people walking by while he's on the cross, hurling insults at him, shaking their heads. Huh, some big shot, are you? Come down from the cross then, save yourself, prove it to us. The high priests and the religious leaders are saying the same thing. He saved others, but he can't save himself. Even the criminals crucified next to him are heaping insults on him. Those on his right and his left, which, if we remember, should be the place of a, a faithful disciple. But his disciples have all fled and are nowhere to be seen. And so we have these kind of stand-in disciples next to him, dying. But they're heaping insults on him, mocking him. And so you probably notice, like, take all this into consideration. You probably see the glaring irony on display in the text. Jesus is the king. He's the king of kings. And yet, he's not treated like a king. Not at all. Rather than honor and respect and worship, he's treated with great shame. 
One theologian put it this way. He said, the cross becomes the throne of a king without a country, without subjects, and without power. And the cross is the throne of a king without subjects, excuse me, without a country, without power. Another commentator looked at this series of events and just said there's this chorus of scorn that surrounds Jesus. You notice that? Everyone is mocking him or beating him or spitting on him or insulting him or belittling him. Again, he, he has the robe and he has the crown and people are bowing down to him, but it's all to mock him. The inscription above him that details why he's being crucified says, hey, king of the Jews. So there's all these signs of, of royalty, and yet he's not treated like a king. No one recognizes him as a king. It's as if everyone in the entire scene is, is missing what God is doing and who Jesus is. And I know this might sound kind of silly, but it sort of reminds me of the TV show Undercover Boss. Anybody seen that TV show? Okay, where there's, yeah, shout out. Okay, so there's a CEO, if you haven't seen it, like a CEO of a company that goes undercover in their own company and starts like working like an entry-level position. So if it was like Jamba Juice, like imagine the CEO of Jamba Juice going and like starting to work at like a Jamba Juice store and making the smoothies, but nobody knows that it's the CEO. And so there's, I don't know how they film it without, I don't know. I don't know the whole story, but you get the idea. The CEO's undercover, and while he's doing this, He's interacting with his employees, kind of seeing how things go. And a lot of the time, that he'll be kind of mistreated or talked down to or kind of bossed around. It's not always a very pleasant experience. But the people treating him this way don't know that he's the CEO, right? And then towards the end of the show, they'll do this like big reveal, like this big aha moment. And all the employees are like, oh, no. I didn't know that you were the CEO. If I had known that, I wouldn't have treated you that way. I wouldn't have said that or talked to you like that, right? Have you ever had a moment where you said something to someone or talked to someone or, or made a joke or said did something and then later you realize like who that person was? You're like, this is not good. This is not good. Okay, so it's kind of like that, except uh, undercover boss. Rather, we have undercover king. But... He's not so undercover because he's been telling them who he is and showing them who he is. And, and even still, they decide to kill him and to get rid of him. They didn't recognize him as their king. See, there's this great uh, truth that we look to at Christmas time called the incarnation. God came incarnate. God in the flesh, God walking among us. We look to John chapter 1, this famous passage of the Bible that says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there it's speaking about Jesus. He was in the beginning. He was with God the Father. He was God. And then it goes on to say, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh. Very God of very God became man and walked among us. And we celebrate that at Christmas. It's a beautiful, amazing truth, an incredible reality that we sing about. That's what Christmas is about. And yet in that chapter, John chapter 1, there's also this 
sad, tragic twist. Okay, in verse 10 of that chapter, it says this. He, Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And then verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Isn't that what we see in Mark chapter 15? Jesus, the king, God himself, the king of glory, coming down to us, but he's not received. He's not recognized for who he is. No, he's, he's mocked, he's beaten, he's insulted, he's ultimately crucified. And so we realize with this text that it's not just here to show us what a couple foolish people did in the first century, what a couple stray soldiers decided to do, or a couple religious elites got rid of Jesus and they killed him and they're to blame. No, the, the point is to see within each of us the tendency to fail to recognize Jesus. Within each of us, there's this tendency in our hearts to, to push away Jesus, to want to get rid of Jesus, to not recognize him or treat him as our king. And we see this kind of clearly in verses 29 to 32, right? The people walking by the cross. Jesus is up on the cross, and what are the people saying as they go by? They're insulting him, and they're saying, oh, so you're the Messiah, huh? You're, you're the king. You're some big shot. Well, why don't you come down from the cross, and then we'll believe you. Yeah, you're going to rebuild the temple, are you? Well, look at you now. They're the chief priest. He saved others. He can't even save himself. Come down from the cross. Then we'll believe in you, Jesus. And essentially what they're saying is, hey, if you were really a king, here's what you would do. Right? Isn't that what they're saying? If you were really a king, Jesus, you would prove it. You would show us. Here's our standards. Come down from the cross and we'll believe you. Jump through our hoops if you're really a king. And we say the same thing today. Jesus, if you're really a king, why don't you, why don't you prove it? What you've shown me is not enough. So why don't you show up in some kind of undeniable way, please? Maybe some miracle right now. Or, or Jesus, if you're really a king, why don't you answer this prayer for me? You answer this prayer, then I'll believe you. Right? If Jesus was really a king, then oh, why does the world look the way that it does? Jesus, if you're such a king, why has my life gone the way that it has? Why have I dealt with the loss that I'm going through or the pain that I'm feeling or the, or the health issues or the mental health issues? Lord, if you really are the king... Why don't you show up? Prove it. Take away my doubt for good. And, and I, don't, I don't say, I don't bring that up to, to belittle questions. We all have questions, and some of those questions and doubts are, are legitimate and are challenges that we have to work through. I think it's healthy for us to think through those questions. But we, we all eventually reach a, a point Right, where we have to decide and say, okay, will I trust that Jesus is who he says he is? And, and there's maybe more to the story, more to the picture of my life and what God is doing in the world than I can see right now? Will I, will I trust that? Or will I say, no, Jesus, if you were really a king, this is how it would be, so I'm just going to wipe my hands clean of this and walk away. We all have to wrestle with how we're going to handle his claims. 
So up to this point, we've seen our blindness and our failure as, as humanity to recognize Jesus as our King. We crucified the Son of God. We put him on the cross. We rejected him, sent him to his death. And this is all true. But we also need to realize that there's, there's more to the story here, more than just the human side of things. Our failure, our rejection of Jesus, our putting him on the cross, that's all true. But there's, there's a bigger picture that's going on here that I don't want us to miss. And so we have to look closely. Theologian Thomas Jones put it this way. He said, the cross is the central doctrine of the Holy Scriptures. All other revealed truths either find their fulfillment in the cross or are necessarily founded upon it. Say, we got to understand this. If we want to make sense of the Scriptures and make sense of what God is trying to tell us, we have to understand the cross and what God is doing here. Remember the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, what does he say? He said, Jews demand signs and, and Gentiles or the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach what? Christ crucified. It's like, That's our message. Some people are looking for signs and power. Some people are looking for eloquent wisdom and teaching. Here's our message, the cross. Christ crucified. That's all we got. That's what we're proclaiming to the world. And so if that's our message... We really want to make sure we understand what is happening on the cross. And so let's look a little closer. It continues in verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon because, oh, excuse me, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. In popular thought, people wondered maybe if Elijah would return or come back to save a, a righteous sufferer. And so like, hey, maybe Elijah's going to come and help Jesus out. But again, we see that doesn't happen. Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. So as the text continues, we see these clues about what's going on here. And that it's more than just our sin, our evil, our wrongdoing that's putting Jesus on the cross. It's more than just us failing to recognize him. We see the hand of God at work. We see God's plan of salvation unfolding. We see that in a couple ways. First, we see the, the darkness that comes over the whole land. This would be understood as a sign of judgment, a sign of God's displeasure upon the land. And it wouldn't be this like natural solar eclipse. I think sometimes people wonder that, like, oh, maybe it's just a solar eclipse. But you know, we're talking about three hours of darkness. And this was a supernatural event, God communicating something about what was happening. And in one sense, it could be God's displeasure, God's judgment on humanity for them crucifying his son. But also, we see this is God's judgment falling on Jesus. God's judgment falling on his son. We see all people have rejected Jesus and left him to die, and now light itself is being withdrawn from Jesus as he sits there in darkness. 
And so it's almost as if God's blessing is withdrawing from his son. And so we see this even more clearly in verse 34 with what Jesus cries out. What does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 22. And a lot of people have wondered, what is Jesus saying here? What is he communicating by that cry? And I think the most straightforward answer is the best answer, that he's sensing divine abandonment. He's sensing that his father has turned his back on him, has left him there to die, to bear the sins of the world, which would be without a doubt the most agonizing part of the cross. Far beyond the physical, torturous death would be the breaking of this fellowship that God the Son enjoyed with God the Father and the Spirit from eternity past. And now in some sense, that fellowship, that intimacy is, is interrupted, is, is broken in some way as God senses, or Jesus senses he's been forsaken by God the Father. See, if a, if a stranger walked up to you and said, hey, I want nothing to do with you, and turn their back on you, most of us probably wouldn't lose a ton of sleep over that. Well, it might, might hurt us a little bit. But, but if a friend of yours were to come up to you and say, hey, I want nothing to do with you, and they turn their back on you, that would be a little harder to take. But if your spouse or your father were to come to you and say, I want nothing to do with you, they turn their back on you? I mean, the relationship where there's supposed to be the deepest intimacy and love and trust there, say, I'm done with you. Can you imagine the wound, the, the pain, the, how alone you might feel in that moment? So Jesus cries out, why, God, have you forsaken me? Which, if we take this seriously, it really forces us to ask the question, why in the world is this going on? Why in the world would Jesus endure this? Why would God do such a thing? We're going to talk about that, but I want us to watch a video really quick that hopefully will give some explanation we to We all it. long for the world to be good, for people to live in peace, act with love and justice, but there's a problem. Something compels us humans to constantly wreak havoc and destruction instead, and we call this evil. And from the Bible's point of view, evil ruins things in at least two ways. There's a direct effect of our evil, like when someone steals from another person, they've created injustice. Hey. You know, therefore, you know, they owe something to make it right. But there's another indirect effect of evil, because they've also ruined the environment of the relationship, creating a lack of trust, there's emotional damage. It's like vandalism, and they need to make that right, too. Now, many people believe, hey, God is good. He should be the one to just get rid of all the evil in the world. But let's be honest. I mean, the evil that I see everywhere out there, it's the same evil that's inside of me. We have all contributed, and, and we keep doing it. And so this kind of puts us in a bind. If God's going to rid the world of evil, he'll have to get rid of us. And this is what's so remarkable about the story of the Bible. This God is so good that not only is he going to rid the world of evil, he's going to do it without destroying humanity. So how is he going to do that? Well, early in the story of the Bible, we're introduced to this practice of animal sacrifice, which I know, it seems weird to us, but for the Israelites, it was a very powerful symbol of God's justice and of his grace. So remember, I'm a contributor to the evil that's in the world. I should be removed. 
But God is allowing this animal's life to be a substitute. It's symbolically dying in my place. The biblical word for this is atonement, which means to cover over someone's death. But there's a second part to this ritual. Remember, evil also causes this relational vandalism. And in the Bible, this idea is described as polluting or defiling the land and making it unclean. So the priest would symbolically wash away the vandalism by sprinkling the animal's blood in different parts of the temple. So the animal's blood is cleaning things? Well, remember, this is a symbol, and it's a symbol that we're not used to. The blood represents life, and the sprinkling of the blood is this representation of how God is cleaning away these indirect consequences of evil in their community. In the Bible, this process is called purification. And so the temple and the land now become a clean space where God and his people can live together in peace. So this ritual makes things right between Israel and God. And more than that, the Israelites experience God's love and his grace through these symbols. And by being forgiven, ideally, this would compel them to become people of love and grace too. Right, that's the ideal, but it wasn't always happening. Right. So the prophet Isaiah, for example, he talks a lot about this. He opens his book by saying that the continual sacrifices of the Israelites had become meaningless because they were also allowing great evil in their midst, ignoring the poor and the oppressed. Even the Israelite kings were distorting justice. But Isaiah looked forward to a day when a new king from the line of David would come and deal with evil, but in a surprising way. The king would become a servant. And not just serve, but also suffer and die for the evil committed by his own people. And his life would be offered as a sacrifice. This is the promise Jesus believed he was fulfilling. He's the king of Israel suffering and dying on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself used Isaiah's words when he said that he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And that word ransom refers to a sacrifice of atonement. And so all over the New Testament, we hear about how Jesus' death was an atoning sacrifice for us. It covered the debt that humans owe God for contributing to all of the evil and death in this world. But the New Testament authors also talk about Jesus' death as providing purification. And so we hear about Jesus' blood as a symbol of his life, having this ability to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in us and around us. Well, hopefully that video was helpful, explaining a bit about why he came, looking at the fact that, that we serve a good, faithful, kind, loving, gracious, merciful God, and also a God of justice, right? A God who, who deals with sin and evil in the world, doesn't just sweep it under the rug, doesn't just wink at it. And so we see that Jesus on the cross is bearing the consequences, the, the punishment for sin that, that we deserve for our contribution to rebelling against God and damaging his good world. And so Jesus is enduring our judgment day. He's facing condemnation, separation from God the Father, and death for us, taking our place. Right? And over and over again, we, we've seen this in the scriptures how Jesus died for us, right? We see that language. He died for us. That's the language of substitution. Jesus taking our place in our stead, bearing the consequences so that we would not have to, so that we, through faith, could be forgiven and go 
free. And, and Mark himself throughout the book has been preparing us for this. Right? We saw the text that was shared, Mark chapter 10, Jesus saying, this is why I came, to give my life as a ransom for many. To give my life, to, to buy back the freedom of my people, to redeem them and restore them. And we saw last week, Pastor Lee was preaching, right? The great exchange. We had Barabbas, this guilty criminal, murderer, worthy of death for what he had done. But what happens to him? He goes free while Jesus, this innocent man who did not deserve death, goes to the cross. So we see this pictured for us, which, which makes us see how backwards, how completely backwards the opponents of Jesus have it, right? Those walking by, hurling insults at him. So, you saved others, but you can't save yourself, huh? But we see that's exactly the point, right? He can save others because he did not save himself. Because he didn't come down from the cross, because he stayed on the cross, he can offer that forgiveness and life to the world. And we see this further in verse 38 as the passage kind of closes. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, right, as Jesus dies. In verse 39, when the centurions, this soldier who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. So verse 38 is really important. There's this a curtain in the temple, in the Jewish temple, that would separate the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple where God's presence would dwell, and, and the rest. And this was not like a, a, a bed sheet. It was like a thick, massively tall, I think like 80 feet tall curtain that would not be passed through very easily. And the, the high priest was the only one that would be able to go into that area once a year with the right sacrifices made standing before God, but now we see as Jesus dies, what happens? That temple is torn in two. That dividing wall is now broken open, symbolically showing now that because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we all have access to God's presence. We all can stand before him, not because of our righteousness or anything that we do, but because of Jesus' atoning sacrifice for us. And so you see that the point of the cross is not just cold justice. Not just cold justice or receiving a payment, thank you very much, now you can go free. That's not the point. The, the point is reconciliation, right? That we can be restored to a relationship with God. That we can be forgiven and cleansed. And because Jesus was forsaken, we could be welcomed home, adopted as sons and daughters of God. We can know our Father intimately both now and forever, as his children, redeemed. The cross shows us God reconciling sinful people to his sinless self. And that's only possible because of the work of Jesus. I'm just so glad here in verse 39 that someone finally gets it right. This soldier, he sees what's happened, and somehow something clicks. He says, this man was the Son of God. This Jesus was who he said he was. And it's not who we would expect to say that, right? Some Roman soldier, a Gentile, from the unlikeliest source, he says, I get it. 
Which brings us back to Mark chapter 1, right? Where it's the beginning of the gospel of the Son of God. And now here we have this pronounced, this was the Son of God. That's really my hope, that right? we as a church would be like this soldier, like this centurion, who looks at Jesus, who looks at this text and says, I get it. He was who he said he was. He is who he says he is. And so we all have to consider, each of us being in different places, what does it look like if, if the Christmas carol says, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king, how are we to receive our king? What does it look like to welcome Jesus, to treat Jesus like a king in your life? It depends where you are. Right? Some of us wouldn't consider ourselves Christians. We wouldn't say we've made any kind of a profession of faith in Jesus. We're here uh, for any, any number of reasons. The first step is, is acknowledging that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the king, that he is the savior, that we do need forgiveness for the things that we've done. We do need to be brought back into relationship with God because we have, have broken that. If that's you today, I would just encourage you to, to get right with the Lord. There's, there's freedom and forgiveness offered to you in Jesus. You simply need to respond. In prayer, simply recognizing your need for a Savior and putting your faith in Jesus. Saying, Jesus, I want to follow you. And then letting his power come in and transform your life. That's the, the great news about the gospel. Is it's not just something that helps us out when we die. I mean, it is that, but it, it begins now. The power of God, his presence, transforming power in our lives to give us new hearts and purpose and relationship with God now. And healing and transformation now. If you're here this morning and you already consider yourself a follower of Jesus, already consider yourself a, a worshiper of, of Jesus, then it's up to you to think through, okay, how do I honor Jesus as my king in my life? As I look at my relationships, as I look at my resources, how I spend my time, does it reflect that Jesus is my king? Do I do things his way or do I want a little bit of Jesus but kind of want to do things my own way too? Or do we, in humility, really submit ourselves to the Lord? Maybe there's a next step for you to take. Maybe you put your faith in Jesus, but you've never been baptized. Never publicly made that profession of faith known. We'd love to talk with you about baptism. Maybe you're here and you're not really plugged into community. You, know, you, you come to church and that's great, but you don't really have a small group or people that you do life with, people that know you, people that you know and are praying for in this church. I would encourage you to take that step in getting in a small group. Maybe you're here and you're in community, but you're not really serving anywhere. I'd encourage you to join a ministry team. Use your gifts, use your talents in some way to serve the Lord. I don't know what that next step needs to look like for you, but I think the challenge is there for each of us to think through, Lord, how can I more recognize you as king in my life? Realizing that the good news of the gospel transforms life now, not just and the good news about our king, is, of course, is that he doesn't expect us to just do this on our own, to try harder, to get it right next time. No, he enables us by his spirit. He gives us the power, the strength, his presence in our lives to do what he's called us to do. 
I mean, that's the unified theme of Scripture is that God does for us what we could not do for ourselves, especially as we look to the cross. Right? We couldn't save ourselves, so he had to rescue us. And we, in our own strength, couldn't live for God. We needed him to come and empower us and enable us by his spirit now to live this new life. And so I sent you out this morning, not just go try harder, not just do better, but the Lord is with you. Look to him for strength to live how he's called you to live. And so, friends, now we get to celebrate together as we come to the table uh, and to take communion together as a church where we look to the elements, the bread and the cup, which remind us, of course, of Jesus' body broken for us on the cross and his blood shed for us on the cross. And we do this in remembrance of him and his saving work. And so I invite you, if you're here this morning and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, even if, if you're visiting, uh, I invite you to come forward and participate. Uh, if you're here this morning and you're not sure that's you or you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, just feel free to stay seated as the music plays and uh, reflect on the things we've talked about this morning. I believe it all is gluten-free, just so you know. There's two stations up front, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to participate together. Jesus, we are truly amazed as we look to you and the cross and what you have done for us. For bearing the sin of the world, freely offering forgiveness and new life and transformation in you. Thank you. We come with humble hearts, recognizing our own sin that required the cross. We recognize how we have sinned against you, God, and sinned against others. And we ask for your forgiveness. And Lord, as we take the elements, we do so with grateful hearts, with joy, with peace, in, in the fact that you have saved us. Our sins are taken away in you. We're given new life in your name. So we come with a, a heart of celebration and joy that we now can know you. We remember you, Jesus. Thank you. Amen.